Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and all that you do for us. You have provided your self-revelation to us in the Word. We ask, O God, that you would please minister that Word to our hearts this morning that we may be the better for it. Help us to be sanctified. Let us hear in such a manner as the Holy Spirit would work these things into our heart and mind. Let there be unction in the preaching. Let your grace be with us. Minister to us that we may be illuminated to your word, that we may understand it, that we may leave here today with something else that we might glorify you by throughout this next week. We ask, O Lord, that you would strengthen us in these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. We so ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. From the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. In this particular section of scripture, we find God's initiative again in making a covenant with humankind. The repetition of the commission given to Adam demonstrates that with Noah, there is a new beginning. He is beginning again, but a beginning that requires covenant. Covenant obligations come into play to demonstrate the value of human life here. The value of human life 
is set very high in that whether a man sheds another's blood or whether even an animal kills a man, that they are required to be killed because the value of human life is so high. Practically, those that come against things like capital punishment have a low view and a small value in human life. The major idea in the passage is the establishment, though, of the Noahic covenant. From the time of Adam, God is known as a covenant-making and now covenant-keeping God. Naturally, this particular motif has bearing on subsequent covenants that God made with his people, but all of these are going to be under the one progression of the covenant of grace. Just like this covenant, those later covenants are going to have continued stipulations for the people and promises as well as signs or sacraments from God. In addition to covenantal concepts, this passage unfolds the continuing recreation or recreation theme with the comparison between Noah and Adam. The original design of the Creator is for blessing and commissioning humankind in the image of God. That's what was supposed to happen in the beginning, but it didn't, because Adam fell. So in this passage, it also alludes to the former by telling them that they are to go forth, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. It also parallels the garden scene with the permission to eat any animal, but with a prohibition against eating blood. There are stipulations. Also, we want to keep in mind that Moses is penning this. The Levitical laws that are seen here are demonstrated later in a greater capacity in the ways that blood is handled. The blood of the animal, according to Leviticus, belongs to God. It is the life. Humans dare not eat that. Moreover, the blood of human beings is in the blood. His life is in his flesh in that manner. Humans, in that case, dare not spill it, for human beings are made in the image of God, which is what God tells Noah here. For the crime of murder, then, society would have the right, the obligation, to take the murderer's life, because they value life so highly and follow the commandments of God. This whole section is divided, though, into two parts. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. The first part is renewal for the worshiping covenant community. And the second part are the covenant promises over divine protection. Let's look at 1 through 7 first. God established the new order by blessing Noah, just like he did with Adam. And by instructing humankind that rather than destroy human life, they have to populate the earth and preserve it. God commissioned humankind to produce life. We call that the cultural mandate. God began the new order by blessing Noah as he had Adam and by allowing people to eat meat without blood. Verses in 1 through 4. And the text clearly shows that Noah was the next Adam, so to speak. That is, he was 
blessed as God's image bearer that's supposed to go out into the earth with the commandments of God to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue it. That's the cultural mandate. He's going to go out. He's going to affect the culture given these particular responsibilities. How does he do that? He does that by covenanting with God and that particular covenant is given to Noah not because Noah wanted it, but because God himself placed that covenant upon him. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth restates the earlier commission of Genesis 1.28. And in both passages, the commission is introduced by and God blessed, thus bestowing the ability to be fruitful. God gives the ability for Noah to do what he needs to do. In verse 7, the verb is actually the word swarm, multiply, making another allusion to the beginning of how things should have been. It would be worth noting that in passages, uh, in, in passing, that these verbs are used in Exodus 1-7 to describe how the Israelites flourished in the land of Egypt, how they multiplied. And it's clear that in the passage, Moses was portraying the people of Israel as obediently following the divine commission from God and enjoying God's blessing. Blessing. Human beings were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to see that in what Adam was supposed to do and now what Noah is supposed to do and no doubt had great ramifications on the Israelites as they came up out of Egypt. God also provides for them, though. There is a provision. Human beings were allowed to eat of every living thing. God instructs humankind to protect life, but God provided Noah and his descendants with food, just like he did with Adam. He opened the animal world to them for food, which was previously not opened. He had given Adam the plants to eat. But within the lavish provision of, quote, every moving thing, there's also a prohibition. Even though they're allowed to eat every moving thing, he says only flesh with its life, its blood, you shall not eat. So the prohibition, human beings were not to eat animals alive. That is with the blood in them. They were not to do that. The point of the prohibition is that people may eat flesh as long as it is no longer living, that it's dead, because the blood represented the life. The text is prohibiting not some, simply the consumption of blood, but rather the life blood, the pulsating living aspect of the animal. That then in turn moves God to create the prohibition from shedding human blood. It will be then a reminder that every time they eat something that doesn't have the lifeblood in it, they are to be reminded of the prohibition for shedding human blood. Because humans, why, are made in the image of God. They are not even to be killed. Any violation of the law of shedding blood would be punished by God. God prohibits the violation of life. He will have a divine reprisal against those that violate that law, and there will be a punishment for shedding human blood. Verse 6. 
that they belong together is evident from the mention of human life in both verses. I will require that divine reprisal and that they are to be punished. The structure of verse 5 is governed by the verb, surely your own blood I will require. It's governed by that requirement. The hand of every beast I will require it. And at the hand of every man's brother I will require. The whole emphasis is put on the verb by a threefold repetition. The command to kill is thus reformulated to express God's absolute lordship over that life. We learn that humankind does not have unlimited power just because God tells them that in the cultural mandate they are to go out and subdue the earth. They are under the law of God. God's warning in this section taught people to safeguard life, both in how they ate meat and how they preserved human life on earth, which will ultimately be demonstrated in the sixth commandment. But here, anyone who shed the blood of another person would be put to death, because humans are made in the image of God. By these teachings, humankind would learn that the law was necessary for the stability of life. There's this new order. Noah just came off the ark. He had worshipped, offered sacrifice. Now what? What's next? What is he to do? Well, there needs to be the stability of life, which undergirds the entire idea of what the Noahic covenant is all about. Stability. That wickedness could not go unchecked as it had been before. It might again attain dimensions that nothing short of a flood could correct. Human government now is being instituted for the provision of keeping things stable. Israel later had laws against bloodshed and eating blood as part of the covenant at Sinai. But here, God is requisitioning Noah in a certain manner, that government now is to be had. And God reiterated his instructions for humankind to fill the earth again to remind them that all of this then is part of that mandate. Verse 7. Then God promised by covenant, by cutting a covenant, that he would never again destroy the world with such a flood and sealed his promise with the sign of the rainbow. Verses 8 to 17. God promised with a covenant that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. He promises to preserve his creation. The second half of the passage records the making of the covenant that ensures that there will not be another watery judgment. God is not going to come and destroy everyone again. And he seals his covenant with the sign or sacrament of the rainbow, reminding himself and the race of the covenant promise. Always, whenever you see a sacrament, it's a visible sign of the word. God promises to preserve life, had placed stipulations about it. And so he instituted the covenant as a gracious provision of protection for all of creation. He will not destroy the world again. The basic point 
of the covenant is that God gave assurance that what he agreed to do would be done. The world would never again be destroyed by a flood. And so he reiterates it with a sign that demonstrates peace. And he uses that sign as a reminder of the pledge that he makes, the visible word. That's why when we see the rainbow, it is a visible word reminding us of what God said, which is what a sacrament is. The covenant is cosmic here and universal, as seen from the sign, the rainbow. As it's arched over the horizon after it rains, it forms an all-embracing sign of God's faithfulness to his word and the covenant of grace that he has made. One theologian observes that the bow, because that's what it is, it's a rainbow, is the same word for the regular battle bow. And so it makes a vivid description of what was going on. God hung up his battle bow to be a sign of peace to the world, that he would no longer ever come against the world with a watery judgment to destroy all flesh in that manner. The sign of the covenant was to who? To all flesh. It was a token of God's pledge to humankind. Israel would be strengthened, as would all covenanters, to see in the skies again and again the pledge of God that keeps his promise of grace in the human race. In addition, it was a reminder that judgment was completed at that time. What God had intended with the flood was completed. The cycle once more came around in the end of the age, albeit in a different form, before there was complete peace and rest, and we will see that once again when he will come again, and as Peter tells us, he will renew the earth with fire. God's covenant is set within the bounds of both judgment and grace, and it always is. The emblem of the bow was the sign of the covenant, serving to remind the participants to keep the stipulations, lest the bow would come off the shelf, so to speak. Here, God, who is omniscient, would perpetually remind himself never to flood the world again. The use in verse 15 of I will remember, and in 16, recalls the use of the words in 8.1, and God remembered Noah. In that same manner, he remembers the rainbow. The verb remember is used frequently to describe God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. He remembers us. He remembers people. He remembers the earth. He remembers his promise. Within the whole context of the flood narrative, the message at the conclusion is one of peace and preservation. God would definitely judge sin, which is what he did, but he would also make a covenant of peace with the survivors. His covenant of peace would reign over the new era in which humankind had the responsibility to take life seriously. This is what they needed to do. And they are not only required to take life seriously, which is the foundation of the cultural mandate, but they are to preserve life because they are regularly reminded that life is precious to God. They're producing life and protecting life. That's what goes on in the covenant mandate. Covenant is based 
on the absolute sovereignty of Elohim, God. It is, in this chapter, my covenant. Verse 9. It applies to man and all creatures. In verse 10. It is a divine promise. In verse 11. It is a special sign. 12 to 17. It appears providentially, the rainbow. 13 and 14. And it is a visual confirmation of what God has enacted on the people. It is comprehensive in its quality. Verse 17. And it is, according to verse 16, of eternal duration. And thus we have Genesis chapter 9. Let's then pull out of this the doctrine of the Noahic covenant. God had said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. We know the narrative as it teaches us already that men are wicked. And wickedness is growing as a result of the fall of Adam. The earth is filled with violence. So God destroys the earth by a flood and he saves Noah, his family, and the animals on the ark from destruction. And the ark rests for a period of time. And Noah comes out. God then speaks to him and makes a covenant with who? Who does God make a covenant with here? Well, most answer, Noah. But that's not what the text says. The text says, all flesh and Noah. The covenant in this particular area, in arena, is with all people. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow. People can even go out today after it rains. They can look up in the sky and they can see the rainbow. As God did in Adam with all humanity, God again has made a covenant with both Noah, a believer, and the entire world, including the unbelievers. With the covenant with Adam as well as the one with Noah, both believers and believers, believers and unbelievers, are in covenant with God. God has sovereignly placed over all of mankind in the beginning here, the covenant or the Noahic covenant, a covenant with them. If they're lost, not only do they take upon themselves the curses of the covenant that they enter into in the covenant of grace in that way, but they make the judgment of the covenant of works greater and more catastrophic for them because they are bound by that covenant being progeny of Adam. But here, we have to ask the question, is Noah's covenant redemptive? Well, in a certain way, yes, and in a certain way, no. Maybe we should ask the question this way. Does the covenant with Noah save anyone? Well, in a certain way, yes. In a certain way, no. God makes a covenant with Noah and all flesh. Everyone, believers and unbelievers, are in covenant with God. It's a redemptive covenant, but it doesn't directly save. Because this stage in God's covenant progression made a covenant that he promises he won't destroy the earth again, and the sign of that is the rainbow, so it's not redemptive in a strict sense, 
being one in which saves, because a rainbow is not going to save unbelievers. And unbelievers are not saved by this particular enactment of the rainbow. But it is a covenant of protection. It's providential. It protects the earth. The theme that stretches out over the planet, encompassing both Noah and all of humankind, is divine protection. The covenant here with Noah and all flesh is setting God's indiscriminate providence over all the earth. It is stabilizing the earth. It is creating, so to speak, the foundation for the building which God is going to build, which ultimately is going to be capped by the capstone of Christ. It stabilizes the earth so that God has a fixed arena in which to work out his covenant of redemption in time. The covenant of redemption being between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to send the Son by the power of the Spirit to apply his work to those for whom he will die. And to enable them in this time arena under the grace of God, in the stability of the Noahic covenant to be saved. Paradise, the Garden of Eden, was initially created for that environment. That's where it was supposed to happen. The cultural mandate was supposed to happen. God's grace poured out and sealed to Adam and rewarded. Should have happened. But he fell. And after the fall, God had to stabilize the earth. Otherwise, if God became as angry as he did with the flood and enacted a flood every time the earth filled up with sin, God would be destroying the earth by water every five seconds. And it would be a continual cycle of destruction. And covenant progression would never get off the ground, so to speak. Man would be perpetually in this cycle of judgment. So rather, the Noahic covenant sets the stage for redemption to take place. In that sense, it is called redemptive. But it is a stretch to formally deem the entire covenant itself redemptive, that it's saved. It doesn't. It is the context by which saved or salvation will happen. As such, because there has to be a context by which God will do this, the Noahic covenant is universal and permanent. And it cannot be altered. It cannot be ended. While the earth remains, it will forever be in place. Therefore, the duty that Noah had is the same duty that all civil government has. To practice retribution and especially to execute murderers, which is universal and permanent. Noah becomes, as it were, the first head of state, the first president so to speak. And in all subsequent governments, they are, as God has so given his law, to follow it. That is what the cultural mandate is all about. The cultural mandate, then, is the expression or the practical application of the Noahic covenant. As with Adam, so now again with Noah. And that mandate is universal 
and it's permanent, which means it's still in force today. We are then, Christians are, the vice-regents of God in order to bring his truth and his will to bear on every sphere of the world and society, every aspect of it. Christians are to exercise godly dominion and influence over their neighborhoods, their schools, their government, their literature and arts, their sports arenas, their workplace, their entertainment media, their news media, their scientific endeavors everywhere. Every aspect, every place, Christians are to intrude into human society because they are governing it by the will of God. God's covenant with Noah presses Christians to see that they have a covenantal watershed to continue the cultural mandate. Every Christian, then, is under that universal and permanent covenant. And so that's why God says in verse 7, be fruitful and multiply in the earth. Christians are to go and do that. This is housed in the value of human life. Godly government will ensue in light of the flood. But in the midst of all of that, human life is to be valued in such a way as that value is to be set against what God's will is. And if God's will is such and such, as he so gives in the scriptures, then everyone everywhere is universally and permanently bound to those laws. The cultural mandate then becomes that practical application of how God works through people in all of the earth for all time in every way. So we see those two things, what the Noahic covenant is and what the cultural mandate is as a result. Let's take that and apply it to us in particular. There are five characteristics of the cultural mandate for covenanters. Noah was a covenanter. The covenant is sovereignly obliged upon those that God so desires it. And they are then obligated to keep the covenant by conditions. But there are five for covenanters of all, all kinds and types and in all ages that's based off of that cultural mandate. The cultural mandate presses us to acknowledge that we are to serve God in knowledge, righteous holiness, with dominion over the animals, and in all areas of creativity. These ought to be employed by Christians in fulfilling their vocation that God gave them over the earth. They are to rule the earth. That's what Genesis 1.26 tells us. So that means... That whatever gifts God has given you, you are to employ in your invocations, and in whatever it is that you do, these particular attributes. While the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, for he founded it and established it, as the Psalm 24 says, still God has entrusted the rule of the earth to people. For the highest of heaven belongs to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. Psalm 115. People are, of course, accountable to God for how they exercise this rule over the earth. Every single one of us here 
are to exercise rule and dominion over the earth in our respective vocations. But we must not think that because we don't have some supreme authority that we don't have any authority whatsoever. God is God of the earth. It's his footstool. But the cultural mandate could then be called these stewards' vocation or stewardship vocation. People are to steward the earth as God's image, representative, or vice regent in that way. The first two chapters of Genesis indicate that their vocation consists of these things. They were to have eternal fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that God says, let us make man in our image. So there's to be fellowship among people, beginning with the fellowship of male and female between the man and his wife. That's to be part of this stewardship over the earth. Fellowship in the right way, in holiness, righteous justice, with dominion over the animals, in truth and knowledge, and in being able to utilize the creativity that God has given us to subdue the earth. Secondly, as God created life, so people are to generate life. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth. They're to do that. It's part of the cultural mandate to subdue the earth. Thirdly, as God ruled over all creation, so people, as God's image, bearers, are to subdue and rule the earth and all living things in it. The force of the Hebrew words, both in Genesis and in what he was talking to Noah about, translates a strong, forceful subjugation of the earth that we are to have and that we can't ignore. Although we shouldn't read into the idea of being harsh or cruel or some kind of careless oppression that oftentimes sin enacts, which would be unlike God's rule over creation, we still can't escape the fact that they indicate subduing and ruling, which is something that the earth will resist and we have to work at to make it happen. Fourth, as God initially planted a garden and commanded all the birds and the fish and the animals and plants of the earth to be fruitful and multiply, so people were to cultivate and guard that garden, enhancing and maximizing its fruitfulness for God's glory and their own benefit and protecting it from the wilderness or others that would encroach on it like serpents. People were then to guide and aid and increase in the garden's productivity. And ultimately, by transforming all of the earth into the garden, the earth's productivity would be the same. The garden wasn't just supposed to be a fixed spot. The garden was supposed to be the center home base to extend the garden over the face of the entire planet. Moral degradation that resulted from the fall destroyed that particular act. And so, God had to restate that with a worshipping covenant community of people as we saw last week. And as a result, so then sent them out to subdue this new order, this new world under this cultural mandate. How did God create man? The Shorter Catechism, question 10. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness with dominion over the creatures. That's how he created them. 
being able then to harness your God-given abilities to the glory of God is the chief end by which we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If we follow the cultural mandate, you're doing what God has so given us to do. However, in a fallen world, in a post-Adam world, the cultural mandate is only possible through grace and through Christ, which is the point of the Noahic Covenant. The effects of the atoning death, the, the victorious resurrection, and the triumphant ascension of Christ, it sweeps over all of creation, including elect people, even animals, plants, and the ground itself. Why do you think he wore a crown of thorns? He's redeeming creation. The destruction that man brought upon creation as a result of the fall, Christ redeems it back. And all of that includes the restoration of the image of God in the redeemed, and through them, the restoration of knowledge, holiness, and creativity, and working in the garden, and maximizing its potential. They're working out the cultural mandate, including going forth and multiplying, subduing and ruling the earth, transforming the wilderness by cultivation into a garden, and guarding that garden against harm. Jesus, when he comes and he dies and all of that which he accomplishes, and he so blesses us with such a salvation, is not simply so that we can go to heaven. The mandate is codified and set under the covenant of grace. And not only is culture arrested by the work of we covenanters in this kingdom, but it's also spiritually present in the sending of now harvesters for harvesting. Jesus takes on the role to set in motion both aspects of that cultural mandate that were broken. The physical dimension and the spiritual dimension. The physical is subdued under God's power because it's done unto the glory of God. But now, because men are fallen in the world, it's not only that we have to cultivate the garden over the face of the earth, so to speak, but now we also have to go out and fix people because they're fallen. And Christ's work does that very thing. Matthew 9, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. See, much like a garden. You go and you harvest the garden, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Not only are we to go out in the cultural mandate to subdue the earth and take our respective gifts to do that, but God is also interested in the spiritual development now of the planet because of the fall. And so... We who are redeemed, the covenanters before God, Noah and his sons and his wives and his wife, they go out, they multiply, and they subdue the earth by spiritual dominion as well as physical dominion. It's always actually a big bunch of nonsense that people are spouting when they talk about God is just interested in the spiritual kingdom because in the end he's just going to renew everything anyway. That is so not what the cultural mandate and what God has intended is about. Genesis clearly demonstrates what Christ came to fulfill as what? The second Adam. Clearly demonstrates that. And here, because the covenant of grace is being renewed before Noah 
and in the presence of Noah with his sons, we should be thinking in the same way. So, the question that's posed to us then is how do you fulfill the cultural mandate for Christ? He has saved you. He has changed you. He has spiritually renewed you. He has set you within his spiritual kingdom as well as this physical world. And so he has given you abilities that you in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the animals and in the creativity which he has blessed you with to be able to go out and fulfill that cultural mandate. How do you do it? The covenant here, remember, is not simply soteriological. Oh, we leave all that, uh, that stuff up to the pastors and so forth that are really spiritual to go out and do those things. No, no, no. The cultural mandate is for the human race. That's why every person who does not fulfill that and twists it or changes it is judged by that initial covenant. The covenant of works. The covenant of the cultural mandate. From the beginning of human life on earth, the human race is mandated to work toward a great future goal. The development of creation in accordance with God's design. What do you do to fulfill that? That development has been disrupted. It's not annulled, it's just disrupted. It's messed up as a result of the fall. But it's reaffirmed in the salvation that we have. And the goal toward which history moves is therefore not a return to the Garden of Eden, but an eschatological fulfillment of creation that we will one day have as a result of the work of Christ. That's the new Jerusalem into which the glory and honor of the nations will be brought, stated in Revelation 21. The movement from the primordial garden to the eschatological city embraces history and is from first to last a struggle for the manifestation of the richness and goodness of creation. How do you find it? How do you make creation rich? How do you make creation by your, by your gifts, by your talents good? What are your gifts? What are your talents? What are your usefulnesses, so to speak, in bringing in the kingdom? What do you do that fulfills the cultural mandate? Know that God has so set you in the midst of it. He has set you there, here, in the kingdom, in which permanently and universally you are obliged not only to bring forth such wonderful things in the richness of God's creation according to your ability, but you're also to demonstrate the power of Christ in the Holy Spirit, in walking with him as to how you're going to make this earth a better place. You know, tree huggers are not a bad thing. That they're not bad people, so to speak. And people who are worried about the environment, that's not a bad thing. And people who want to make society better, that's not a bad thing. It's just that when those things are placed out of their context, it's a bad thing. It's when those things are not done for the glory of God that they're a bad thing. Because they're done for some other selfish reason. God has so set us all here, covenanted before him. Covenanted so that even today, if we go out and we look up in the sky after it rains, we'll see his rainbow. 
and we'll be reminded that he has placed us here to affect a difference, to make a ripple effect somewhere, in some way, in our family, in our work, in our area, in our neighborhood, in our city, in whatsoever it is. We should be affecting the world as a result of what God did through Noah and the Noahic covenant and what he did with starting with him. And we should really take a long and hard uh, time to think about what it is that God so desires of us as we affect change here, godly change on earth. Vocations can be anything that, that's morally upright. Vocations are not bad. Vocations are not non-spiritual. Vocations are eminently spiritual. And how we deal with those and what we do in them. Sometimes we think we don't have such a, you know, such a big deal of a job. Maybe we just cut hair. Whoopie-doo. Right? Every single job that we have is eminently spiritual. Because every vocation that we utilize to the glory of God, before God, for his glory, in making a difference spiritually in those things, is glorifying to him. We have to remember what God has done in the Noahic Covenant to demonstrate that mandate to us. Again, let those two words echo in your mind. It is universal and it is permanent. And we're part of that even now. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would be with us as we consider these things. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you for your word which demonstrates to us the covenant that you made with Noah, demonstrates to us the power that the Lord Jesus Christ has effectuated as a result of his work in the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace breaking out into time. That there with Noah, you stabilized the earth. There you begin building the building, the spiritual temple of your people, with the capstone who's Christ. We ask that you would aid us, strengthen us, and help us, O God. That you would give us grace and mercy. That you would aid us in our vocations, in our work, whatsoever it might be. Whether it's to be a mother, or a husband, or a manager, or an employee, or a contractor, or whatsoever it is that you have given us to do. That all of these things are to be subdued in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, in all of the creativity that you instill in us, that we may subdue the earth for your glory and extend the garden, so to speak. And we so ask that you would aid and help us to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.